0: Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Shredded Ed, Cardio Johnny, Paul C, Matt Mork Supertroll and Brazil Hadley, the best infotainment show around where you'll hear us joke, banter and debunk all the nutritional myths you've heard time and time again, helping you get fit, healthy and shredded. All right, well, Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast, episode number 49 and today we've got another super special guest, uh, John Sykes. Hello, John. Hi there, Brett. Hello. And uh, also joined by the Welsh wonder himself, Jonathan Lewis. Hello. Hello. What's going on? Well, no, that's not how the Welsh greet people. Hi, Brett. Hi, What's been happening, Johnny? What's been... Got... I'm going to say Johnny and John, so... Or unless, John, you prefer a different um, nickname. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll go with John. John. We'll go with John. Cool. So, Johnny, um, what's been happening, mate? What's
1: going on? I'd done a 12... No, was it 12K? I'll say 12 to 13K walk with Eliza on my front yesterday. And I felt like at the end, my arms and shoulders were going to fall off.
0: You're getting, you're, you're getting into walking with Eliza a lot, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Put a strapper in my uh, in the body it? whatever harness. it's called. The overpriced harness, 140 quid harness. Ridiculous. <laughs> and then uh, just take it up to my parents' house. Had, she had food there. Back up the woods, then. So good trek. I think we say thirteen, thirteen kilometers overall. So that's pretty much all I did. In the morning, cut the grass. In the afternoon, no, there's no, there's no glamour, there's no glamour here. No.
0: There's no,
1: no glamorous podcasters here.
0: No, but you're doing. I mean, I don't know if it was a purposeful segue, but it's a nice kind of lead into hopefully some of the stuff that we'll be talking about today. I think. Um, well, okay, well, as you're so boring, I'm going to move on. So, John, hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, it's obviously, thank you for coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure this is going to be loads of really cool content. So, like, we obviously were, uh, or, yeah, we were to you through Alan, obviously Alan Flanagan, who we had on previously. Um, as, as, you know, obviously, we said before the we started recording, really, I I knew who you were beforehand. I'd heard of you. I've seen some of your stuff on Instagram and, and social media and stuff anyway, and, um, I was kind of, I think, I'm trying to think where, so obviously, and we'll get into this, what, what this is, but like movie treat was something that I'd heard of before, I think through Chris Burgess on Lift the Bar. I think yeah, that's yeah. mainly where, I, where I'd heard that from. So I kind of like knew a little bit about that. But for those that don't know anything about you, um, could you just maybe just go into a little bit, say, sort of talk a bit, a bit of background, how you got into what you do now and, and kind of that type of stuff?
2: Yeah, of course, no problem. Well, yeah first of all thanks for having me on a real pleasure to be part of the podcast um, so yes yeah, so I'm a GP who's working in the Bath area I do a bit of work in Wiltshire as well um, and I've kind of always been interested in in being active and being sporty myself um and kind of did a first degree in Durham where I played lots of sport and enjoyed that quite a lot and that was in kind of cell biology and I was always interested in kind of cellular mechanisms and the science behind things And that led me on to doing medicine at Norwich University. Um, And from there, I kind of looked into uh, sports and exercise medicine quite a lot more. Um, I was always keen to know more about the sports side of things, mainly because the reason I went into medicine in the first place, well, one of the big reasons was I had a sports injury. I was told that I shouldn't play sports anymore. Um, And that was obviously quite sad to hear when I was playing sport about a couple of hours a day. But I was lucky enough to come to contact with a sports specialist who kind of got me into doing more things that were kind of based around reducing the stuff I was doing, um, but allowing me to still play sports. And that kind of inspired me to want to go down the, the medicine route a lot more. Um, so, yeah, I always wanted to be a sports doctor. My dream was to be the sports doctor for Huddersfield Town Football Club, who um, mightily have survived the premiership this year, which is amazing for us. Um But the more and more I got into it, the more I realized that I was actually interested in using exercise as a tool for treatment um, and for reducing disease. So this kind of idea of preventative medicine, as opposed to uh, using kind of pills and things, but actually using kind of exercise as a way of reducing disease, preventing disease um, and even curing and reversing disease to a certain extent. Um, So the more and more I looked into it, the more I was interested, the more I looked into the science, the more I was intrigued. And then I started just doing presentations on it. So whenever I was a junior doctor in hospital jobs, I would do presentations on it to my seniors, to my colleagues. And I became, got this, almost this reputation as the one who talks about physical activity at any opportunity. And from there, I got interested in other things. So nutrition, sleep, um, kind of stress reduction, um, and also getting people a part of a community. And it almost developed into this thing, which has now become lifestyle medicine. I hadn't really come across the idea of lifestyle medicine before then um, but it kind of just landed on my lap and and someone set up a society last year which is now 400 strong called the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine which I'm lucky enough to be a director of Um, and yeah just a few things that led up to that were working in public health for a bit as you mentioned movie treats which was a, a group set up by a guy called Joe Lightfoot who had a huge passion for preventative medicine and using kind of exercise but other things as well as a way of reducing disease and it's really encouraging actually because i think lots of medics and um healthcare professionals are really interested in this topic in not just using activity but other ways of kind of optimizing health really um and there's so much research about it and i think it's getting a lot more airtime than it usually, you know, did in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's encouraging to hear that you've even heard some of my stuff because I've not exactly got loads of following on Instagram, but it's it's great to hear that that kind of message is getting out. And there are several others who've got much more of a following than I do who are really kind of getting that message out, which is, yeah, really encouraging.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah. Like, I mean, the, the following thing is a funny thing because generally the people that are doing the best work are the ones that aren't marketing their things. I mean, you look at the people that even are a bit more mainstream, so the likes of your Eric Helms, your Alan Aragons, in the in the fitness space it is, rather than the medical space, I suppose. But they're they're the guys that they aren't I mean, they are the, the more rock stars. Even Alan would call it himself, wouldn't he, a rock star of the ind- yeah. fitness industry. But they only have a few thousand followers probably, like tens of thousands maybe in some of them. Um and then tell you Martin, Mark McDonald's, obviously he's only just got over ten thousand, twelve thousand and then you look at some of the people like um I' was going to use like some examples some like Jamie Alderton and Ross Edgeley and some of the the bigger names that you've even seen this weekend all over body power and like and that's not to to kind of like casting dispersions over those those individuals, but they're not doing the work some of these in, other individuals are doing that just don't have this following because they are just really good on social media whereas the guys like doing the research and obviously kind of making are trying to make the the biggest difference the ones that are just they're behind the scenes doing the stuff so I think it's a credit really to, to obviously people like yourself don't obviously not having followings I think it, it's probably like almost a bit of a feather in the cap almost if that makes sense i know it sounds a bit like an, an oxymoron almost, <laughs> I say, I'll, yeah i'll take that <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it just it probably means that you're doing the right stuff and you're not just flashing your stuff over social media <laughs> um you, you kind of obviously went into a bit about what lifestyle medicine is um i don't know if you can just define it like kind of a bit more um succinctly just so people can really understand okay so obviously you, you've talked about Um, exercise as as the example but what what is it completely so yeah so for me
2: it's about optimizing people's lifestyle habits to prevent reduce and even reverse and if we're lucky enough cure disease every kind of condition that we have got guidelines for treatment guidelines all talks about kind of the first stages of managing or treating a disease is optimizing lifestyle so we talked about increasing activity optimizing diets, getting sleep habits right, making sure that we are um, reducing stress, and also engaging in social situations. As we know, that's massively beneficial to our health. And those five things, I think, are the key core of lifestyle medicine for me. But there are loads of other things, such as reducing pollution, um, drugs and alcohol, environmental exposures, which are numerous, um, sun exposure, vitamin D, that kind of thing um so i'd say that was the basis of it just optimizing those lifestyle factors in order to better our health and i think it's massive in terms of the fact that you know working in uh general practice and seeing patients on a a daily basis i think 70 to 80 percent is the estimate that the the stats give us of disease that we see in general practice is related to poor lifestyle choices and in order for us to address that and really make an impact on that, then it requires healthcare professionals to be educated in how we can help people to make those changes. So that requires a knowledge of those lifestyle factors and how we can help people make those changes, but also to help us to actually use the tools to to help that change. So a term which is bashed around quite a lot within kind of medical uh, terms is this idea of motivational interviewing, um, which I think is very appropriate for kind of the way personal trainers approach their clients Mm -hmm. as well in terms of, making sure that we are looking at why someone is motivated to do something how motivated they are how we can encourage that motivation to increase looking at their goals looking at their confidence that they have to make those changes and how we can set them smart aims so something that's actually specific measurable achievable and it's got a time set on it um, and allowing them to feel empowered to make those changes and I think some people say all oh, that fluffy you know telling people to just eat a bit better and do a bit more activity for me it's about being a bit more specific because when we think about medications there's lots of medications that we use but we don't tell patients to go away and have our oh, maybe have one you know tablet a day um, doesn't matter what dose you take but maybe the next day you don't have to you know we, we don't do like that actually in order to help people I think being a bit more specific in certain areas can be really helpful um, and it has to be very bespoke for the individual because we are individuals and we all have different health needs and we all have different preferences. Yeah. So working out what yeah. different lifestyle things for an individual I think is a um, really hard thing to do but has the potential to make such a, a massive impact on someone's life and their
0: health. Yeah. I mean, that you say about it being a really hard thing to do. I guess, like, it'd be really interesting to know, obviously you haven't been through the training, um, what GPs are actually taught in terms of either like lifestyle medicine or nutrition specifically bear in mind obviously it's a nutrition podcast i guess that's what we're most interested in um although we you know we've talked to list of about all of the other um pillars or factors of just general well-being or, or lifestyle stuff so obviously definitely talk about them too but from the nutrition point it's interesting to hear what what you guys are taught
1: hmm
2: so yeah sadly not a huge amount um the estimates, I think, for most medical universities are kind of 10 to 15 hours in the entire five years, which is obviously absolutely wow. minimal. Having said that, I think it's down to individuals a little bit in, in terms of learning their own stuff. So I know from a personal point of view, I, I love reading nutrition stuff. I'm doing Mac University this year, which I know you guys have done um, as well. And I, I just love it just love reading more about stuff, love chatting to Alan as well about nutrition. And I think a a lot of medical individuals are starting to do that. But I do think there's also recently been a drive for more medical professionals to um, get teaching on nutrition. And even at university level, I think we're starting to see a lot of movement in that area. There's a group called NutriTank, which is a group of medical students who are actually campaigning for kind of more teaching within medical schools. Similar to Move Eat Treat in a way, but they've got a much more a much bigger group than we have. They've got societies in most universities now. Um and I think that's something that we'll start to see a lot more of. Connery medicine as well. Have you guys heard of Connery Medicine before?
0: Uh vaguely. Uh i I mean I'm assuming it's more around kind of uh well actually I'll let you explain it because you'll I'll probably butcher it. So.
2: <laughs> so connery medicine is essentially teaching um, doctors and Uh, healthcare professionals to cook
1: um,
2: but also teaching the nutrition information around that as well. I attended one of the first culinary medicine courses that we had in the UK which was organised by the group here Um, and they've started to do that teaching at Bristol Medical School as well which is encouraging. So I do think there's a drive for more of it and there's also clearly a, a need and a want from medical students and medical professionals to learn more about this. I think the key thing here to say though is that it's important that we get the teaching from the right people so i think there has been a lot of information coming from certain doctors and um, we aren't the professionals in terms of nutrition we're not the experts and i think it's very important that we do acknowledge that there are nutrition experts out there that should be teaching this material who should be consulted on this material and should be essentially guiding us with the information that we have on our courses and it's it's really fascinating that the curriculum for nutrition is actually being reconsidered for medical students um, soon, and I think they're getting kind of key nutrition people involved in order to, to make those changes, which yeah. is really encouraging.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it does it, – when you say 10 to 15 hours, that does dumb, dumbfound me a little bit in that we talked about things like authoritarian syndrome and stuff on the podcast before because I do think it's something that's real in that mm-hmm. – Anyone in a positional authority, you do, I mean, and there is evidence and studies out there kind of suggest this. You'll have heard of things like the marshmallow studies where they talked about kids and obviously the you know the positional authorities or there's so the, what's the one they're electrocuted? And we talked about on one, I can't remember the name of the study now. But essentially people will believe the positional authority. And I think GPs are one of those things where some of the things like as a qualified nutritionist, you hear people say, oh, but my doctor told me this it's like you do think to yourself like i'm not in a position because i'm just a nutritionist i you know air quote just a nutritionist to almost question that because people will just immediately believe that their gp will know what they're doing and then when you say like they're taught 10 to 15 hours worth of, of you guys are taught 10 to 15 hours worth of, of nutrition um knowledge almost yeah that's quite quite um not, not only dumb thing, but of really concerning and i guess mm. It is credit again to to people like yourselves. So I guess it's like anything. There's going to be really good GPS that do go out the way to do CPD and continue personal development, um, learn new stuff because they realise maybe they're not getting given the tools to to do the best job they possibly can. I suppose if mm. you're, you're lucky, you've got to be lucky enough to have a GP in your catchment area that that does it. I suppose.
2: Yeah, and I think to be honest, it's something that a lot of people are interested in. I think the way medical university courses are taught these days is a lot kind of student led, so. If you want to learn more about a certain area, then you you can do that. Yeah. Um, it does mean you won't get tested on it, but ultimately, you know, we're pe- a, a lot of the guys who go to medical school are kind of interested in that kind of stuff, so that they will end up reading about it. Yeah. Uh, and i as I said, I think the growth in this movement has shown the rapid increase in interest, or maybe the hidden interest that was that was always been there, but now people are starting to show themselves this interest in nutrition and. I get loads of people asking me about um, Mac University all the time. With a, you know, really lots of people quite keen to do that mm. because they just want more of this knowledge. And I think it's exciting because I think you're right that authoritarianism is is quite a big factor. Mm. And I think sometimes it it's used in the wrong way, and and that's what we need to avoid. Mm. We uh, need to make sure that those who are advising on these key health issues really know what they're talking about.
0: Yeah, I, I don't even necessarily think it's probably in any way. Sinister, or um, no. except I'd imagine just, and I've, and I've always defended GPs, especially being that it's very difficult for a general practitioner to be in anything. Bear in mind the title itself, your general practitioner, like you've got to know absolutely everything, and it, we, we, it, it would be impossible to for for, for a GP to specialise really in something because you just you wouldn't remember half the stuff that you'd need to know. So I've always been quick to defend that. I've, all, I've also then said to for people that I've had these types of discussions with to say, like, do your own research as well. You know, I'm not saying don't listen to your GP. I'm saying do your own research because I think it's um, not necessarily questioning it. Because I think it's just healthy to have a critical mindset to to go through and say, well, actually, let's just check if it is right. I mean, one example could be that, and a conversation I once had in because I work in an office on, on a day to day basis. Um, my GP GP told me that lemon water reduces my cholesterol. I think, okay, that's fine. Have you got? Any, did they provide any evidence of that? Or have you gone on tried to find any evidence? Like, well, no, but they're a doctor. Okay. It, that, it's that type of mindset where I just, like, I think, yeah, I, I think it, that possibly, like I say, not necessarily misused, as you say, um, but more so just because they don't have the time to do anything else. So I guess, like, the the, the levels of people that you guys have to see are so high. Like, we, all, I think, obviously, that's pretty common knowledge within the, within the public sector. Um, mm you're you probably you you're under pressure to get people in and out. So I guess yeah. that, that doesn't help either.
2: I think it's more than the misleading messages. It's the lack of information. So I, I fear the situation where you get someone coming to their general practitioner and saying, I really want to know how to lose weight. Can you just give, you know, we haven't got, it's only a 10-minute consult. Mm. Can we just talk about it quickly even, or even the one minute of the consult and that general practitioner maybe not having much advice to give? Because ultimately... Sadly, the way things are at the moment, there's not a lot of time for these conversations around lifestyle things. Mm. But if there's just a few snippets which can be given, which I'd say a lot of healthcare practitioners maybe don't have at the moment, um, then that can actually make a big impact on that patient's life. And it may not be kind of lemon water stuff that that hopefully is not something that's coming out of most GPs. Um, but I'd say it's more the the lack of knowledge which is the issue with general practitioners. So that when people patients come into their GP and say well what about this normally the answer is I'm not sure as opposed to a definite answer and I feel sometimes that can be unhelpful as well not that they will know all the answers you say because there's there's a lot to know Mm -hmm. but I'd say that actually it's important that they do know a few key bits of certainly nutrition knowledge so that they can debunk some of the myths debunk some of the information and again just going back to kind of Mac University that's something that I've found incredibly useful this year learning that stuff so that when I do get those questions asked of me, it does mean that I can kind of give good answers which are evidence based
1: Uh, yeah definitely I think patients um, come in expecting to be given tablets and pills for whatever and they just don't, this might just be generalising, do you think people actually want to know, right, you've actually got to exercise, you've got to change your eating habits, I'm not just going to give you a pill when you could change it by your lifestyle. Do, do people want to hear that or are they reluctant to go, all right, I'll change my diet, I'll change my lifestyle.
2: It's, it's a really good point. I think some people aren't in the stage of actually wanting to make those changes. And I think it comes back to this idea of using this motivational interviewing to work out at what point of the change cycle is that person in. So if that person is not you know, going to receive that message well, or they don't seem open to that message, then, to be honest, you have to pick your battles and decide that actually that's not someone who you're going to win that battle with. But there will be people who want to know just a little bit, and that's great. And then you can give them a little snippet of information, whether it be about activity, nutrition, and those are the two ones that I often focus on. Um, but even if you can just give a snippet to someone, and they may not take your advice, and they may not go with that. The, the big one for me that's really challenged me recently is inf- information around sleep. So um, I've been reading a couple of books around sleep and just been overwhelmed by the power of sleep and how much of an impact it can have. And a common consultation that I'll have on almost a daily basis is, is patients who find it difficult to sleep, um, often requesting pills. So that's the perfect example, really. And I will often try and explain the lifestyle things behind benefits of sleep and how pills actually probably aren't the optimal way of getting sleep. And in fact, if we want to make a long-term solution for better health and for better sleep, then these things are more important. But you're right. I think sometimes people aren't wanting to accept that message. And it's just a case of not being critical of that, being accepting of that, sadly, that the model we're in of symptom control as opposed to prevention of medicine and looking at more of the long-term goal. Looking, I think we often do focus on the short-term goal, which is bettering sleep in the next few weeks as opposed to in a few years. But I'd hope that that would be something that would gradually change. And as I said, when we assess kind of where people are at, I'd hope that more population. I do feel that I'm not happy what you two think, but I feel that generally the population is a lot more recipient to this message now. I mean, in the fact that you look at, say, this sleep book, which was on the Joe Rogan podcast a few weeks ago, um, I mean, that's had so much airtime and i think people are really starting to value sleep a lot more and i'd hope that that would start to look at other areas as well um i don't know do, do you guys feel that that's something that's coming more to the forefront
1: i think in in terms of I mean, in general health and nutrition and exercise or just sleep in particular either any of them really i from what we've seen obviously we control like a group of like 1600 people so we sort of control the conversation a bit but from looking on the internet in general, I think people are open, but I think they're too open to okay. stupidness. Like, okay. I think they're open to like exercise and diet. They understand they have to do something to lose weight. They have to exercise, but I think a lot of people fall prey to right. Cannabis oil is a, is, a, is a huge one now. Right, cannabis oil is magical. I'll take this and I will cure everything that's ever been known to mankind. People who fall into that sort of trap or they fall into they're not receiving information from the right people. Like carbs make you fat and every eat carbs, fat makes you fat and every eat fat. So I think they're receptive to it, but they may have an open mind that's too open to yeah, yeah. I think, like look at what you look at what you're saying to me. Do you think that's like a supplement? And I say to someone to, to women in, in general. I said, if I would say to you, Use a pill, your hair will go fuck tomorrow. You'd call me ridiculous, wouldn't you? So the things you're saying to me is it's that sort of equivalent. So they are yeah, there's a lot of people who are open to it. But too
0: open. But I think that's obviously down to who shouts aloud us, I suppose, on, on the internet these days. I think I think just to add on that, I think a lot of the issue is that there is so much information and, and like resources available now in that it's everywhere. It's like obviously people using Facebook. You can't scroll down your feed without something to do with diets, lifestyle, nutritional, whatever. Um, billboards, just you know, books, whatever. It's just literally everywhere. I think the it actually comes down to uh, John. I think what you're talking about in terms of motivational motivational interviewing, if I can say it, um, whereabouts on that um, continuum of change they are. I think most people are just down that end where they see something that's shiny because they're not really motivated to change. They just want to take the shiny option because it's easy. You know they they're not they're not at that point where actually I'm really ready to change right now. I'm committed to do what's needed. Whereas they're at then the other end thinking actually I'm not really bothered, but I would like to lose some weight. Oh, there's a shiny magic oil or something that I could, that's promised me the world. I'll just do that. But it's think, not it's not their
1: fault even is it? Because they, they've been sold
0: a big line. It's like
1: well. They got a they got a an initial after their name. It's not it's probably not going to be MD because most comes to America. It's going to be some randomness of an end of a name. They must know what they're talking about. I will follow them, regardless of anything else. Mm. It's not their so fault. Where,
2: yeah, completely. And I think this is where lifestyle medicine for me is so exciting, because I feel if you are able to empower a workforce such as healthcare professionals. And when I say healthcare professionals, I mean encompassing personal trainers, encompassing dieticians, nutritionists, general practitioners, nurses, to be the, the source of this information as opposed to the random person who's talking about you know some random theory around a superfood of some sort that's mm-hmm. going to make them thin in tablet form. If you've actually got a healthcare system which is providing that information, evidence-based information in a system where you're able to analyze where someone's at in their terms of their cycle of change give them support empower them with accurate evidence-based information to push them on their journey to lose that weight then all even though they may be in the position of wanting to see something shiny and that make a difference actually even if they're only slightly motivated having those things those factors around them of people knowing the evidence knowing the information and being able to support them hopefully could Increase their motivation from being, a, say, a three out of ten, to a seven out of ten because they they see that they're they're somewhere, and then when they get somewhere, they get to a ten out of ten because they, they see that the improvements they're making, and I think that's that's for me the the really exciting thing about lifestyle medicine because I think we're seeing a lot more practitioners gaining an interest in this, and empowering their practices to make differences. So. For instance, there's practices in um, up north, there's in Norwood surgery up north where, where they're combined with a park run. So a lot of their GPs go along to park run and take their patients with them. And some of the patient stories are just incredible. Mm. You know, patients who, as you'd say, would have been a, a kind of a low level of motivation to make a change, um, and in this situation, for physical activity, but from there, become active, run marathons, run half marathons, change their diet, lost lots of weight, And one example I can think of was a lady who was kind of depressed, low. She was on three or four medications, started coming along to Park Run. She now runs every week at Park Run, runs half marathons off all of her medications and has transformed her life. But she would have been in that bracket at the start of being an unmotivated person. Mm. She ended up not only being a motivated person, but someone who has motivated many others Mm. to pursue that journey into health, which is amazing. Yeah,
1: there is, there uh, is. Do you think we need to probably as sort of GPs, nutritionists, personal trainers? Do we need to start now in schools and teach kids now for you know the next forty, fifty years? Because these are the next generation. In forty, fifty years, I give me the people if they don't change now. Well, not now, but if they carry on and don't get information, in 50 years they'll be using the NHS for heart disease, cancer, obesity, blah, blah, blah. We've been getting them now, I know it's very, very long term. I think, right, but let's hope to reduce this obesity epidemic in the next 40 or 50 years by going into schools now and starting them off of exercise, cooking, nutrition, what foods are and all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's a real issue. Actually, the stats for children exercising in the UK are horrible. So it's 21 percent of boys and only 16 percent of girls aged five to 15 are actually hitting the guidelines for physical activity, which is terribly low. I mean, it's bad for adults, um, but for children, that's shockingly low Mm. that, you know, less than a quarter. actually hitting the guidelines for boys and girls
0: what 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 are the guidelines for physical activity for adults or, or children then
2: yeah good question so the guidelines for adults are 150 minutes of moderate intensity cardiovascular activity um in a week and then on top of that two muscle strengthening activities a week and then as well as that the other caveat is to reduce your sedentary behavior which is another different thing as a Opposed to being inactive, and we can certainly have a chat about that yeah, as well. Um, but the and then for children, it's 60 minutes of activity a day, um, which sounds like a lot, but if you think about it when you're a kid, I kind of think when I was a kid, I did more than that anyway, so it's not that much. Um, and they should be doing three muscle strengthening activities a week, um, and again, reducing their sedentary behavior. Now, muscle strengthening um, doesn't have to be kind of lifting heavy weights in a gym it's essentially things that are weight bearing so even kind of hopping and skipping and that kind of stuff um climbing frame anything like that counts um and if we think about kind of adults um and certainly the over 65 guidelines it more focuses on muscle strengthening and balance so tai chi um yoga that sort of thing to to really help um increase those physical activity levels because we know that Strengthening up muscles reduces the risk of falls, increases your ability to function um, and therefore reduces your risk of a number of things dramatically. And the benefits of physical activity are massive. Um, You know, I think the thing that really hits me every time I look at it is the fact that it just hits so many different conditions. So if we're physically active and hit those guidelines that I just mentioned, we reduce our risk of diabetes by 50%. Reduce our risk of osteoporosis, which is where you get thin bones, by about 65%. Risk of colon cancer drops by 50% if we're active. Risk of breast cancer drops by 20%. Our risk of dementia drops by 30%. And our risk of um, depression as well drops by about 30%. So, you know, huge numbers. And if we were able to package up being active into kind of a pill, we'd give it to everyone. This is a, a, a lot of people are bashed around it was actually said last weekend by the Australian Cancer Society um, whereas they feel that actually exercise should be a part of every cancer regime and the evidence behind that is massive for not just pre-treatment but during treatment and even after remission from disease or even down the palliative care route when we haven't got a cure being active actually helps you to function helps you with your mood and helps you even recover um, when we're thinking about surviving from cancer. So, the, the benefits are massive, um, and it's something that I feel we need to stress more generally as healthcare professionals. Um, and it's something I don't think a lot of
1: people are as aware of. That's amazing. The numbers you said—they're ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah. They are. I guess Do so the um, in it, it, this annoyed me. Do so the. Um, the advert for cancer reaches the obesity and people are getting offended by it, that actually annoyed me. I was thinking, look, they're trying to help you. They're not saying, look, you are fat. They're just saying, look, obesity increases your risk of cancer, which you can prevent. And it's like, that's what, it's like, a bit of, we're not, in, we had a bit of a nanny state, like, oh, we've got to be PC. Don't offend anyone. It's like, well, actually, this is life or death, potentially. And you're worrying about it. It's like, come on. That's what annoys me. It's like, they're telling you, you have to do this for your health or you will potentially get cancer, then come on, because <laughs> those numbers are incredible. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think,
2: I think should... stressing the positive is really key because I think we can, um, if we do stress those numbers, as you say, they're pretty baffling, aren't they? How big those numbers are. Um, and if we really make that clear. And I think it really, fo- it really changes our attention to what we focus on in terms of why we become active. Most people who I see who are trying to lose weight in for their health or whatever reason in general practice are doing it, and they do it by um, being active, when actually the evidence shows us that actually just by increasing your physical activity, it's quite hard to lose weight. Weight loss is often the aim, but it, it's actually one of the hardest things to achieve by just increasing your activity. There are other elements that you have to address, and that can be debatable about what those things are. For me, it will be nutrition and sleep. but that seems to be the aim for most people for being active. And yet it shouldn't be. Actually, it should be for bettering our health and yeah. bettering all those things and reducing our risk of disease significantly. Um, and it's encouraging in a way, because it means that we don't have to look at the scales when we become active as our goal. We can say, actually, I know that I'm bettering my health. I'm allowing my heart to pump blood better around my body. I'm allowing my lungs to have a better capacity to take oxygen in and fuel my body. Like. I'm reducing my cancer risk by just going for a walk. I mean, it's empowering to hear those messages. Mm. And I feel it's something that, you know, I I love talking about. And, you know, my friends drives them bonkers because I just don't shut up about it. But it's, it's it's a really empowering message. And it's an encouraging one that actually that should be our goal, bettering our health. Is, is why we should be active.
0: You, you talk about uh, friends not liking you talk about it. I've just spent a week in an all-inclusive resort with uh, my in-laws and my brother and sister-in-law, so uh, you can imagine the fun they had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you shouldn't be eating that. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I joke. Um, no, you, you're absolutely right. And it's something we actually talked about on a few episodes back, actually, in terms of... Um, we went through a couple of studies around... Um, exercise intervention versus nutritional intervention for weight loss um and yeah it absolutely c- uh, concurs with what you've just said in that exercise alone is shown not to be overly successful um without nutritional intervention and we we kind of ended the podcast with almost exactly what you have just said so it's really cool that you've just said it in that we really feel like nutrition for weight loss um, exercise for health effectively so it's quite yeah. cool you said that. Uh, and it, obviously they blur a little bit, you know, it's not like they're, they're, they're completely mutually exclusive, but um, I think if you look at it in that way um, and just realize that they are two pillars that both need to be looked at, then uh, you can't lose almost, so.
2: Yeah, definitely, and there's, there's good evidence to show that exercise helps you, help you um, to maintain weight, mm-hmm. definitely. And as you say, there is a bit of overlap with it, but I think it's just making sure that people's main aim of act- being active is not to lose weight, because that should not be the goal, and it doesn't need to be, because actually there are so many other things which provide benefit. Yeah,
0: I think I mean just from the weight loss perspective, bearing in mind that we've hammered this home over forty-nine episodes now around calories in, calories out is is you know the the, the principle of weight loss. Um, when you just compare what it takes to burn an, an amount of calories compared to what it takes to eat it, it straight away shows you that the, the intervention, which one's going to be most successful is not going to be exercise. If you're solely focusing on one. Um, Completely. Yeah.
2: And there's there's other el- interesting elements you can look into with that. So there were some studies done in, uh, the Hadza hunter gatherer truck. Yeah. Yeah yeah. Um, yeah. 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 These are, these there. are really interesting, aren't they? Have you heard about these? Uh, yeah.
0: So the, uh, exercise paradox, right?
2: Yeah. Just Yeah. And essentially, they were able to show that they they did doubly labeled water studies. So the best way of uh, assessing energy expenditure um, and they were able to show that the Westerner, the average Westerner burns exactly the same number of calories as um, someone in the Hadza tribe who's like a hunter gatherer on their feet all day, literally hunting food, um, which is unbelievable. And then they, they did the study again for a group in Venezuela and found the same thing again, the difference in calories between the Hadza tribe and the Venezuelan tribe was like four calories. Yeah. And what it shows you, for me, is that your body's so good at adapting. Like, our bodies are incredible things which can adapt to the uh, pressure or, or, or activity that they're, they're put under, which means that actually they'll adapt to expend whatever calories they need for that. Yeah. But actually, yeah. what you take in is something you can change, and your body won't adapt as well to that. And that's the way, as you said, energy in, energy out is is a massive part of that. That Um, should be overlooked.
0: When I when I read the study on the Hadza tribe, um I'll be honest, I left with more questions than answers. Um it blew my mind slightly because obviously it kind of went against a lot of the stuff that I've always believed in. Um and I guess like they never really got to a, a reason other than obviously what you've just said in terms of adaptation of some sort. Um, mm. but I don't know how or why because uh, obviously we know we know the compartments or models of what we believe makes up energy expenditure it's kind of like well none of the bits could really adapt that much surely to acqu- account for the amount of exercise or activity they're doing but obviously it does because as you say they are using doubly labored water which isn't you know it's the most accurate way you're ever going to get of measuring it so yeah that was uh, my but in fact i'm'm I'm, what I started reading this holiday and we're going to do an episode on it soon actually uh, was Stefan Gna's book hungry brain I've had it on my bookshelf yeah. for a year and I've not been out, like since it, literally since it's pre-released and uh, I'm only now getting through it because I've just spent a week obviously on holiday and I've just started reading it and the, he mentions a lot of the stuff on the to Tribe in there actually and um, really, really interesting stuff. So uh, yeah, it does kind of show you really that we don't really have, um, what was I going to say? What was I don't know how I was going to put it. Really, like basically, activity is really important, but it isn't the 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 thing that we should be concentrating on. Almost as as we've said. So, um, but there was there was tons more stuff even on Stephen Guyne's book, which again, really really interesting things, which is why we want to do a whole episode really based on a lot of the concepts and stuff that he's talking about. So, yeah, we'll get around to that. Um, <laughs> cool, right? So uh, obviously slightly off topic, but no, it's really really good. So we talked a bit about I guess the physical activity guidelines. Um, it's amazing like johnny said really the, the the dramatic decrease in um the risks of of all those types of cancer and i guess lots and lots of other stuff like you mentioned diabetes and um cardiovascular disease etc cetera, etc cetera. with nutrition as well as the physical activity stuff so if someone actually um started having a more healthful diet i guess that just compounds all of that and just reduces those even more
2: yeah completely and it would just all spiral and and the, the nice thing, again, about lifestyle medicine is it does hit a lot of different things. And I think once you get someone bought into the idea that they can better their health through one of these elements, you'll find that they're interested in more. Um, and it can just completely change their lives. And it's just really encouraging to hear. I mean, a great example is uh, a patient of mine who is happy for me to share this story. And um, he came to me with multiple conditions, as in genuinely 10 conditions, Um, and he weighed I think about 130 kilograms he was only kind of what was he five four so big big guy Mm. couldn't sleep couldn't do anything um and just through gradually I'd seen him so many times over the last kind of eight months but just gradually we've worked on different things at the start I even tried to mention activity and he just completely ignored me um but just gradually, we've worked on different things to now to the point where we've talked about nutrition, we've talked about being active, and we've talked about sleep. And he's now in a position where he's lost, I think, 18 kilograms in weight. Two of the conditions that he had before, he he doesn't have anymore. Um, it, it, you know, things like his blood pressure. I I ha- I was adding blood pressure medications six months ago. I'm now taking them off because his blood pressure is normalising. Um, I even sent him to a clinic, a specialist blood pressure clinic to be like, I can't control this guy's blood pressure. And then they sent him back saying this guy has got a normal blood pressure because he'd made the changes before seeing them for the referral. Um, so I think it's a case of, yeah, all these things are going to make an impact. Um, and I think some people will be bought into one more than the other to begin with. Some people are more interested in nutrition at the start. Some people are more interested in physical activity. Some people are more interested in sleep. But once people are bought into the idea of changing those things and empowering themselves to, to live better and feel healthier, then I'd hope those things would just come more into to play with, with consultations with practitioners who
0: feel that they're able to do that thing. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you said about uh, this individual then kind of not showing any um, positivity around wanting to become more active. Um, yeah. Maybe it's a good time to seg- segue on to, um, I guess, like what's the difference between between being sedentary and inactive because a lot of us would probably feel like it's the same thing. So I would consider myself um, reasonably active, but I do sit on my backside most of the day, um, like a lot of office workers slash healthcare professionals, (laughs) I guess. Um, My only activity really is my exercise sessions and the fact that I'm obviously very conscious around I do try and get up I've got a step target that I hit every day. Um, so, kind of maybe just explain what the differences are there, because obviously there are differences, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. So, sedentary behavior is essentially behavior where we're not expending very much energy. And essentially, it's things like sitting and lying down. Now, we know that, you know, as part of our day, we have to do that to a certain extent, and there will be times when we have to do that. But prolonged periods of doing that can make quite a big impact on our health. We know in the UK we do a lot of this. So I think the, the stats are a fifth of a year we spend sitting and about 64 days a year we spend watching television. And these are significant sedentary t- periods of time mm. which can, can cause damage to our health. Now, the idea of being active is hitting those guidelines which we discussed earlier. And it's exactly as you said, you can still be active so you could get your hour of gym session in that day, but if you've spent eight hours sat down in your desk, driving to work, those kind of things where you haven't done much movement, you are technically classed as sedentary. And the issue with that is we know that being sedentary is linked with a number of cardiovascular risk factors, so increased waist circumference, increased BMI, increased resting blood pressure, increased triglyceride, which is a type of fat which increases your risk of several cardiovascular um, problems reduced HDL, which is the good type of cholesterol, increased um, LDL, which is the bad type of cholesterol, and also impacts on your glucose as well. So all of these things are detrimentally associated with sitting more. Um, And we're not really sure why that is. There's some thoughts that it's due to kind of loss of contractile stimulation in the skeletal muscle. And that means that we get a suppression of an enzyme called lipoprotein lipase, which is very important in HDL production, um, and also uptake of triglyceride. Um, and also thought to reduce kind of glucose production and glucose is important in getting kind of um, glucose into your muscle cells again. So those are the kind of suspected reasons. But essentially, it can have a really, really big impact to the point where, you know, your increase in cardiovascular disease. There was a study that done in 2010, which looked at kind of a number of hours sitting in a car. That would cause you an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So if you you had an 82% chance, increased chance of dying from heart disease if you spent 10 hours commuting in a car compared to if you spent less than four hours in a week commuting in a car. You know, 82%, absolutely massive. Your increased risk of um cardiovascular disease was sorry, cardiovascular death was increased by 64% if you spent 23 hours in the week being sedentary compared to less than 10. So again, massive numbers. And these were in people who they didn't really assess the activity as much in, but there have been further studies where we've seen people can still be active, but still have these risks associated with being sedentary. And in fact, the the study that there was a study that was done in 2017, which is a massive systematic review, which, looked at this it was actually over a million people I think and it looked at this idea of how much activity we you'd need to do in order to counteract the risk associated with being sat down all day and They found out that you needed to do about 60 to 75 minutes of exercise a day in order to counter that risk Which is not feasible for most people so it just goes to show you how important it is for not to sit too much um, and the massive impact that can have and again, that's not something that a lot of people are aware of. As you say, I think a lot of people, especially in uh, most jobs these days, do sit for most of the day, go to the gym maybe in the evening or did so first thing in the morning, and they think, well, I'm active, that's fine. But actually the risk associated with being sedentary is massive, and, and many people aren't aware of that.
1: You find them people who just they sedentary, then they go for a gym session. They'll be in the mindset of, oh, I deserve my cake now. So then, essentially, calorie intake goes up because they believe that, oh, I'm, I'm active, I've done a bit of training, so I've burned this many calories on my smartwatch, which is wrong. And then, oh, I'm going to eat my 300 calories. I, I burned 500, I'm also going to eat 300, when the reality, they could have burned probably two, and then they're overeating. So they sort of compound it further by eating more. Didn't they, I think they've done it. I can't remember that. I can't remember the study. My memory's awful. Funny enough, sit so don't sleep much anymore because of my daughter. <laughs> but they, they were showing like people who started exercising actually reduced their meat considerably and ate more. So they may as well not bothered in the first place because they were worse off. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. You highlight a really important part there that people who sometimes do increase their activity do find that they even gain weight because of this reward system, which we've almost developed as a, a society that if you exercise, you're okay to have that massive piece of cake. And the way that we estimate calories burnt during activity is just so inaccurate, it's, it's almost laughable. Um, which means that you're right, it does create this almost a negative culture out of something that should be bettering our health, which is bonkers. Um, and another important issue, which I think needs addressing massively.
1: It does highlight the scale of the job leading really, across Every health professional to whittle all that information down to the general population. I mean, scarily big. Mm -hmm. The conversation you could have. It is, but I think it's that. I think again, that's what it's
2: exciting me about this lifestyle medicine movement. In that, this is a a multi-disciplinary approach. There are so many of us involved in this, and as I said, it's a case of getting personal trainers involved in this. It's a case of getting health coaches involved in this. It's a case of getting dieticians, nutritionists, nurses, health, um, healthcare assistants, doctors, in hospital as well as in general practice. Because if this message, which you know the basics of this message, are quite basic. Yeah. If we're able to empower people with these messages, we can make massive difference to people's life mm-hmm. and their health. And I think that hopefully this movement will become that. Um, and as you say, it, it's it's not the easiest thing. And I think. Um, We've got a long way to go because there is so much confusion currently about so many elements of the things we've talked about today. But it's encouraging that as a group there are there's passion. And I see it when I'm in the mentoring lab for Mac Nutrition Uni and I see so many personal trainers and others who are just so passionate about bettering people's health. And I see it in my GP practice when I talk to them about getting people active and I see doctors genuinely passionate about that. And I just think that that will just continue to grow, or I hope it will, into this force of people who just want to help people be healthier with simple messages. Mm.
0: Absolutely. I guess so, so what this, well, it feels like a good roundup in terms of what would be kind of like the top five. Let's expand it to wellbeing. So top five wellbeing things that you would say then, um, and go into as much detail about them as, as you want rather than, I mean, it's up to you, obviously I know you, I know you're going to say sleep and nutrition, whatever, but just, whatever you feel is like the top five things people can do to basically or essentially better their health through lifestyle medicine. I know we've talked about them, but I, I kind of want to leave a nice succinct roundup for the people listening that they can actually action.
2: Well, could I, could I do it based around sedentary behavior?
0: Cause yep. that's, I think, the bit, um, yeah.
2: yeah. Cause I think that I can give some more precise information on that. So yeah, definitely. I think for me, it's a case of just trying to break up those long periods of sitting and that can make a massive impact. So, um, I often advise that people set timers on their watch. This is something that when I worked in public health, we actually had a little timer on our desk, which told us when we were just sat at our desk for an hour. And you can get these timers. You can even get apps to install on your phones to let you know when you've just been sat for an hour. And even if it's a case of literally getting up, walking around your desk and sitting down again, that will reduce your sedentary behavior. So that'd be one, Um, getting a standing desk. So you can buy very cheap standing desks on Amazon for like 20 quid which are worth doing, um, makes a big, big difference to your sedentary behaviour. Just standing makes a big, big difference, and lots of studies have shown that. Making meetings into walk and talk meetings, um, making sure that you drink lots, so you go to the toilet quite a lot, which means that you actually are getting breaks of those sedentary behaviours. And even just trying to incorporate a an activity into a break that you can see coming. So being a football fan for me i say at half time let's go for a walk oh we're watching a series of something well let's make sure we just pop out quickly for the two minutes or even pause the episode or if we're watching a film pause it halfway go and do something so just making sure you're incorporating periods of doing something even if it's really brief as literally as quick as getting up and going to the toilet to reduce that sedentary behavior can make a really big impact um to yeah so reducing that 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 component of your health which can make quite a big difference
0: how, how do you just on that how do you feel about sort of step targets then sort of kind of footprints yeah.
2: and smartwatches and good question so i think for some people it's really helpful and in fact one of the things that i do in general practice when i have someone who will tell me that they're being quite active is i'm a little bit nosy and i say would you mind if i just have a look on your phone yeah it uh, be a bit weird Um, And I go to the health app and I'm able to show them that actually they're doing a lot less activity than than they thought. Mm. I don't think the the phones are that accurate Um, and actually they they're kind of accurately inaccurate, which is good in a way because it means Mm. that you can just assess their progress for increasing their number of steps. So I think trying to get someone to increase their activity is a very individual approach and it has to be very bespoke to them. For some people, having an aim of 10,000 steps is really, really useful. For some it's not useful at all. And there are other aims that we can look to work towards, which are actually probably better than the 10,000 steps. So for instance, there's an app called the active 10 app, which I advise a lot of my patients to get. Um, and there was a program on recently with Dr. Michael Mosley, where he got people to try and hit the 10,000 steps for the day and how they felt doing that. Or they use the active 10 app to try and do 10 minutes, three times a day of brisk walking, which in some studies is shown to be more effective in helping your metabolic health than doing the 10,000 steps. So instead of doing lots of walking, you're doing these quick spells, but you're doing it quite quickly, working up a bit more of a sweat. Hmm. And that's, that's as, a, as effective, if not more effective, than, than doing the 10,000. Oh, um, and more
1: achievable.
0: Yeah. I hadn't heard that. I'm not going to lie. That's um, interesting. I'll be interested in reading some stuff about that.
1: So I think I think it's right, don't it? because if someone's currently doing 2,000, for you to say, oh, do 10, they're going to go, well, I'm probably not going to get a 10. And it sort of demoralises them a bit, to they like, I can't get a 10, what's the point sort of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And again, that goes back to setting specific goals yeah. to that individual that are achievable. Um, and you can start small. We know that the biggest benefits for getting people active start from someone doing nothing. To someone just doing something so if that person which in most cases they're doing two to three thousand steps I will literally set them an aim of what they feel is realistic for the next week some of them say five thousand steps four times a day some of them say ten thousand steps seven seven times a a week even Um, and others say actually I'd rather do the ten minutes so yeah it's, it's up to an individual approach but going back to your question Brett I think it's all about kind of Whatever they're doing, try and get them to do a little bit more, which is achievable. Mm. Um, And the steps is a useful tool. It's not gold standard. And it was only used as some, I think, marketing campaign in another country. I can't remember where it came from. Uh, But there's not a lot of evidence behind it. But it's just a nice thing to aim towards to, to hit an activity goal. I mean, if we think about kind of history, 50 years ago, I think it's 50 years ago, maybe a bit more than that, we were doing about... Twenty to thirty thousand steps a day, the average person. Um, compare that to now, when we're talking about doing well if we're hitting ten, yeah. like it's a third. So, there's no doubt we do need to increase our activity, and whether it be through steps or whatever, it's just about trying to do that wherever we can.
0: Yeah, I think you could actually go straight back to the the exercise paradox study as well, and say, well, actually, like increasing it to X amount from a weight loss perspective probably isn't necessarily that. Well, I guess it's un it's unfounded. So actually, I'd probably uh, not. The it's probably a bit. Um, what am I looking for? Looser meter. Obviously, go and say say it. Maybe I was going to say though. Maybe like you, people might lose faith in actually trying to do those step because they know all oh, my body's going to adapt. And I guess obviously that's probably unfair. Actually, um, Again, and, Depending on what the
2: goal is though. So if their goal is weight loss, then yes. Yeah, that's what I was getting yeah. to almost. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, but obviously, you know, you, you talk about the Hadza tribe and this massive activity. Although they're not increasing their calories necessarily calories expenditure they have zero risk of obesity zero uh, prevalence of obesity almost um outside i think so in the book stefan's written i think he said there was one guy that basically doesn't follow the same lifestyle principles as everyone else he was a rich man that disappeared and came back and he was overweight taken out of his environment effectively um whereas the rest of them have no no prevalence of obesity diabetes cardiovascular disease they're they're all you know really pretty healthy um, which is quite ironic, because when people say to you about, okay, what's the best diet? You know, how, how do I, how what's the best diet for for health or whatever? And it's like, well, it's not just about diet. There's far more factors in, involved in it. Um, all the things we've talked about. Because um, when you look at like, okay, well, who lives the longest? You know, these blue so-called blue zones where you, the highest concentration of centenarians and all of the things they do have in common are, you know, they they have none of these risks of diseases because they eat their energy expenditure they have some sun, regular sunlight they they're not sedentary you know they are moving around a lot you said about social communities and stuff obviously they've got their own social communities and all of these things um i like to throw it out when people say about veganism or vegetarianism being the the healthiest diet they're like, yeah well actually the people that live the longest none of them are vegetarian uh, sorry none of them are vegan and only like one population's vegetarian, so it's always a nice one to bring out when they say a vegan, <laughs> vegetarian diet's healthier.
1: I, um, I have like an argument with the, the vegan about. I said, look at the blue zones; none of them vegan. Yeah. And look at heart disease. Yeah, but this one tribe eats a bit of meat. That has like a half percent of heart disease. I mean, so you're quibbling about one in like a million people yeah. or whatever.
0: So t- talk about um, uh, oh god, what's the Eskimo tribe, effectively that basically lives on whale blubber and uh whale blood or something you know they they get literally no fruit and vegetables oh. um i can't think of the name of this i want to say that's not the pima they're the pima indians and all you talking yeah. about yeah but it's like well and again they don't have any any prevalence of 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 these types of disease that we're talking about in our modern day in the in the more uh, westernized uh, society so yeah it's fu- it's a fu- funny conversation when especially with vegans and vegetarians but there we go so another... you do have
2: a few points there that the blue zone benefits are essentially what I advocate for the lifestyle medicine mm. they are all those things that they just hit the nail on the head mm. and it, it's not complicated it's not hard but those are the things they do and they live the longest yeah. so let's
0: do them <laughs> the, the, the hardest things they have and this is why this book interests me so much is the hardest thing they have is obviously finding food um, mm. which almost forces them to do a lot of the stuff that we're saying we should be doing but because we live yeah. now in a world of abundance where we don't have to do any of these things, yeah. our, our survival mechanisms are almost kind of used against us and, and actually causing uh, an, an obesity epidemic, effectively, which I guess is obviously the theory that, that Stefan and stuff are talking about. But big spoiler for the next episode, that's going to be. <laughs> um, no, cool. Well, thank you. I think that's probably good, unless you've got anything else you particularly want to cover, I think that's probably a good way to round it up, actually. Yeah, I think that's a good. Your way to round up. Yeah, cool. Well, um, I don't know if you've listened to any episodes where we had guests on. Yeah. You did? Okay. So you'll know at the end then that we like yeah. to ask a few non-nutrition-related questions? No, I didn't know that actually. Okay. Well, we do like to ask a few non- <laughs> okay. non-nutrition-related questions just because uh, for, for, the, for the entertainment value. Um, a couple of things actually I picked up on. Obviously, glad to hear that you went to the UEA because I'm a Norwich yeah. lad. So oh, okay. nice and local to me. That's cool. It's a good university, isn't it? Actually, UEA. So especially for medical stuff. Um, so that's cool. And also another little uh, tenuous link is I was at the John Smith Stadium only about six weeks ago presenting there. So obviously you've been Huddersfield fan. Oh. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I um, think I can say. This. I do any reason why not. But I was basically doing a presentation for Simply Biz Group, which are a financial institution um, that are uh, based in the stadium. I think their own is a like part shareholder or something. So um, so he's got, uh, like, their office spaces in, in literally in, in the stand. So, mm. yeah, a little tenuous link. Um, but they're not the questions. <laughs> so uh, I'll crack on. So um, what is your favourite flexible food? So by flexible, we mean kind of junk, really. I guess, you know, the <coughs> IFOM. I just suddenly realised it's got really dark in here. You turned your light on, I'm sitting there in the dark. Yeah,
2: oh. <laughs> I just realised there's no light in the
0: room <laughs>
2: So I think if you asked me this like a few weeks ago, or maybe two months ago, I was gonna say the Halo Top um, uh, Cinnamon Bun.
0: Speaking to the right uh, yeah.
2: But uh, I really—it's a lot higher calories, but I really like the the Ben and Jerry's Caramel one. Um, Got what the main name is it? The, the one that's the so the light version has just come out,
0: or home, yeah, oh, is it like yeah. car- caramel cookie fudge or something? Yeah, like, like for, you're right. It's that's I haven't done it yet. Like so, I made a I went through all of the Halo Top f- uh, flavors when they came out, and um, I put a bit of a list together in terms of my top seven. And okay. then the Ben and Jerry's light versions come out, and I haven't actually um, kind of did a review of those yet, but I plan to. But the cookie one is outrageously good for a light ice cream, albeit like you say, I think the pot was, the, the whole pint's about six hundred and fifty odd calories, something yeah. like that. So almost yeah. double the halo top but i think it's probably worth it in that it does actually taste like proper ice cream it really
2: does it's yeah. pretty special i think it's not for off the real thing i think mean, the only other thing i suppose would be uh bear bells um cashew cashew caramel Carole.
0: yeah okay favorite yeah now that got a good rating for me as well so <laughs> good cool right um although it's got you know 20 grams of protein decent enough serving just about wouldn't call that flexible. Yep. <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. <laughs> <laughs> Um It's a it's a performance food. <laughs> um, okay, the best burger joint you've ever visited. Oh. So there's so a, there, the, there's a few good ones around your way in Bath. And there Bathroom. are. Yeah. So
2: there's Sports us
0: Yeah. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, I have. Yeah, been there. Very That's good. Famous in yeah.
2: Um And that was. That's pretty special to be honest. That's definitely my favourite in Bath. Um, I do like a GBK, but that one in Bath's my
0: favourite, definitely. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. It's a, like, there's a few good ones around, like, the Bath, and especially Bristol. Bristol seems to have a lot of good burger places. So, I'm trying to think what's in Bristol. So, some, there's a Hobgoblin Pub, is really good. Oohie Diner, right. really good. Obviously, they've got um, Grill Stock. Yeah, Bristol,
1: yeah, so they're all good around your way.
0: Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you're quite spoiled, yeah. actually. So. Uh, best piece of advice you've ever been given that doesn't have to be nutritional related or even well-being related although I have a feeling it might be but. Uh, best bit of advice
2: I think it would be like um, it's actually quite recently from a friend and it was about kind of not chasing stuff just the sake for achieving things mm. and actually more just being content with what you're doing and knowing you're doing the right thing so I think it's very easy to look at, say, especially we talked about it at the start, kind of look at where you are on social media and the things you're doing and the things you're achieving and be very kind of like, oh, I wish I was in that place. I wish I was doing that. But then assessing that further and being like, well, for what outcome? What's your end goal? What's the end thing you want to get to? And I think I've been a lot better recently based on that bit of advice that my mate gave me about working out why. I want to get somewhere or do something by knowing what my end goal is mm. um, or at least having a better idea of what my end goal is because actually it means that some of those things which you get annoyed about and can easily get frustrated about doesn't matter mm. and you can actually just enjoy being the place you're at and enjoy the journey.
0: Yeah, that's that's a cool bit of advice actually. It reminds me a bit of what... Um, we often talk about uh, in pt groups around people always ask things like oh what's the you know the best nutrition course you can do and blah 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 and it's like yeah, it's a bit of an ongoing joke now really that the amount of debates that that sparks but it, it comes down to that almost like like people say about oh you need to go get a degree you, know, you need to get a dietetics degree or you need to do this and it's like well actually do you because Unless you want to work with, say, clinical patients, you don't need a dietetics degree. Um, and it's that type yeah. of scenario where like, someone could, we- not waste, that's a really wrong way to put it, someone could obviously spend three to four years of their studying time to doing something that maybe isn't necessarily appropriate for what they even want to do. If they want to work with Gen Pop to help people lose weight and become healthier, it's probably not going to be the best use. So that, yeah, that's a really cool bit of advice, actually. It just reminded me of that in terms of kind of assessing what you know your end goal, what is it you actually want to do? Because that, that will make a big difference in what you then decide. Cool, no, that's really cool. Um, penultimate question uh, and an important one: What food would be best to make a house out of? Ooh. We've we've had some seriously poor answers on this one. Um, someone did actually say wet pasta, and you, you can, yeah, I almost ended the podcast there and then, just thinking no. Get, but so, just think carefully.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, I feel gingerbread surely gingerbread's been said before
0: uh it hasn't actually although that goes from mind every time I ask the question so and obviously you know the obvious reasons why but no no one's actually said it
2: I definitely go gingerbread
0: is that because is that just because of Hansel and Gretel or is it because you really like gingerbread or do you just think structure would
2: be good so I think structurally it'd be quite good I also think gingerbread is delicious Mm. and I'm also like a massive sweet fan Mm. and when you have a gingerbread house you always have to have the decorations as well so you get a few like cheeky sweets and then the icing which i weirdly love like on cakes and things like that that kind of really sugary artificial icing Mm. massive fan of so i feel like that would be great and i just decorate the inside of the house as well with that and i think it would be strong enough as well
0: i think i think icing. i was gonna say i think icing on a food reward Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'd say who, i say I'm not. I don't even remember who it was now that I even used the pasta. But as I say, I should have. I should have literally just said end call. Sorry, we're not doing this anymore. It was such a poor rice, be <laughs> squares. Uh, that's solid. That's a solid answer, John. Although we didn't ask it, sticky. you, sticky. You ain't knocking that down. No, no. <laughs> I promise, I'd eat my way out of it. Quite easily, I think that's the problem with all these food ideas. Like, you you wouldn't, your house wouldn't last very long because you just eat it. Mm -hmm. I I was actually going to say the uh, icing thing is obviously probably one of the best ratios of uh, sugar to fat ratio. Um, and I guess it's like high on the food reward scale, I'd imagine. Obviously, calorically dense, um, Mm. full of fat, full of sugar. It's probably like everything basically we are pre programmed to eat. So, fair. Yeah. Um, cool. Right. The final question, and this is the most important one: um, Would you rather be attacked by one horse size duck or a hundred size horses, and why? <laughs> um, just picture. I, 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 like, I like to tell people to picture the scene, really take in the environment yeah. and feel about what it's like, and then make a, a really informed decision because it's really important. Yeah.
2: It's got to be the horse-sized duck. I mean, that's terrifying. Like ducks, when they get angry, like they properly kick off. Um, and I think the size of a, a massive horse-sized duck doing that, yeah, I, I wouldn't back myself for that. But I reckon a lot
0: of small horses,
2: I could just kick them
0: away. Everyone says that. Everyone says I could kick them. And I think to myself, right, let's just go back to, like, envisaging this environment of 100 horses running at you. <laughs> Now feel, and, or think about how muscular a horse is, and okay, they're only small, there's only ducks, but still, how many do you think you could kick for your foot breaks?
2: Yeah, that's fair, but I think you just like jump around a lot, so you could like kick them for a bit, and then just like, squash uh,
0: them, squash them a bit, and I don't know, I don't know, there is no, no I say this every week uh, when we have guests, there is no right or wrong answer. But that was the wrong answer. So it's just No, it's just, I I just I feel like the horse sized duck, you could probably attack at the legs or something and just get it get it down and then you could run away, whereas you could only get through a few horses uh I think before you get trampled by the other ninety five.
2: I think you'd struggle to get to the, the horse sized duck's legs because like he just get you with his beak. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah you with probably.
2: his
0: today. Duck, duck and roll I don't know We that was not no pun intended there <laughs> no cool right well I'll, t- I'll take that answer so um, i say there is no right or wrong answer so it doesn't matter so um, no big uh, thank you mate for coming on um, loads of useful content in fact um, we said the same to Alan we want him to come on again but we'd love you to come on again as well um, we've got some others like we were chatting within our coaches group so our slot us uh, six coaches now so just taking on a uh, new, new coach in Fran um, we would kind of talk with our group saying there's maybe another topic that we'd maybe like you to cover so I'll chat to you offline if I like can see if you, you would um, but yeah no great to have you on if you want to shout out your socials let's try and get your following up a little bit so shout out your socials anything you want to plug or or talk about then now's your time
2: great cheers yeah so um, on Instagram is my main medium for getting information out at the moment which is um, at health and fitness doctor Um, or one word and yeah check me out on that I'm planning to do kind of more things um, on a website but that's kind of taking a lot longer to come about than I thought it would and then also if you're interested in this stuff and you want to know more then please do check out the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine as I said at the start I'm one of the directors Um, but we've got lots of good information that's going on there we've got a conference where we've got over 160 people I think going to Edinburgh in June Um, But we've got room for more, and as I said, it'll be great to get more people part of the movement. And it's a multidisciplinary team; we need more people involved, and yeah, to hopefully push this this stuff more into the mainstream.
0: Was it this that Martin's speaking at?
2: Um, No, so so that's um, yeah. So so it kind of is. So yeah, Martin's kindly, Martin McDonald's kindly speaking at the Nutrition by the Experts event, which I'm helping to organise as part of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, oh, okay. and that was in May. Um, and that one came about mainly because I think we're seeing that a lot of doctors do need, well, and you know, healthcare professionals want to know more about nutrition, but it's kind of what I emphasized about the importance of being taught by the right people, mm. and the people yeah. who really know the nutrition science and the evidence base, so that we're learning from the right sources. Um, so we're covering some really key topics in terms of fats, sugar, Low carb, all that kind of stuff, and it should be really interesting. We've got professors and stuff coming, so yeah, it should be should be great.
0: Yeah, no, that's so cool. I'll be honest, that's that's so cool for the likes of us who's obviously would consider Martin a mentor of ours going through obviously um, MNU and stuff, and that's so cool to know that like respected professionals will be going through that similar stuff that we have. I think that's you know that that does certainly you know yeah, it's just it's so cool, really. So,
2: I mean, great. It happen more, and I think hopefully. Within time, we will get people like Martin in front of more um, healthcare professionals, and and that would be the aim of this, really. Yeah.
0: Well, if there's anything we can do to help um, with our following and stuff in terms of kind of sp- spreading awareness or anything that you you think we could get involved in, we'd love to. I'm sure uh, help it in any way we can. Obviously, shout out on the podcast. We'll get everyone to follow you. And you know, I don't know if there'd be any GPs as such within our on our realm, Johnny. I don't know in the group have we've had any. Well, Matthew's girlfriend's a GP and G. Well, wow, yeah, I suppose Charlotte is, yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. we'll send
1: her along. Um, I, I suppose... don't know the a dietitian in a group, local to me,
0: but no, not that I know of, yeah. GPs. I don't know if, is Banner in there? Is Michael Banner in there? Mm, oh, yeah. Maybe, actually, he's, yeah, maybe he is. He's probably hiding around yeah. somewhere in our group, I'm sure, so. Martin, <laughs> somewhere. You are? Martin's in there as well, somewhere, Well he yeah. was. Yeah, no, he's, he's got too many things like rotten uh, presentations for body part at the last minute to worry about our group, mate. Uh, cool. Right. Well, again, big thank you. Um, we'll end it there. And uh, yeah, we'll obviously love to get you on again soon if, you, if, you, if you'd like to. So. Great. Cool. Cheers, Brett. Cheers, Johnny. Right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the No
2: Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week.